Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. From the Boise Reformation Conference last weekend, here's Pastor Mark Jones speaking on our obedience to Christ. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council a good and righteous man. Joseph of Arimathea died, and if I had been at his funeral, I would have been able to say, based upon what God's Word has said of Joseph, he was a good man. Perfectly good? No. That's not the point. One of the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. To have the Spirit is to have goodness, it's to have peace, it's to have joy, it's to have love, it's to have patience, kindness, self-control. What about saying to, and if you're a pastor, you could try this on Sunday, ask people to stand up. If you are pure in heart, please stand up. I would like to see who you are. Well, you you know that naturally people are not going to stand up. It's a little bit embarrassing. Probably not as bad as, you know, turn to the brother beside you and greet you, mind you, but... <laughs> but Christians have pure hearts. In, in 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Or if you want to worship God, you look at Psalm 15, Psalm 24, you need to have a pure heart. David desires that God will create in him a pure heart. Is that just pie in the sky? I need to say this to show that I really am repentant? Or is that something David actually believes based upon God's promise that he will receive? Or how about... Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who are those who are going to see God? The pure in heart. And it's the heart from where our obedience springs. It's, it's, it's not just so much are we able to host someone for dinner and show hospitality. Our obedience isn't simply measured by the things that we do. Our obedience is measured from the state of our heart and not desiring the things that we used to desire. That our heart is being purified by faith. That the Holy Spirit comes to us and gives us pure hearts. Sinless hearts? No. But pure hearts, nevertheless, because God is pleased to accept imperfection based upon the fact that we belong to His Son. What about being blameless and righteous? 
I trust by now you know that I'm going to have plenty of verses to back this up. So if you're a Christian and you're blameless and righteous, please remain seated. You see? Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is before Pentecost. Before the outpouring of the Spirit in such an amazing way. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 6, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Joseph of Arimathea, as I said, was a good, but he was also a righteous man. And Paul will say to the Romans that we are slaves of what? Slaves of righteousness. Or in the Beatitudes, Jesus will say that we hunger and we thirst after righteousness, which is the same thing as being a slave of righteousness. Paul will write to the Philippians, do all things without complaining or disputing or grumbling. Why? So that you may be blameless and innocent Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, he's not talking about the fact that you are blameless and righteous because you are justified and have received the imputed righteousness of Christ. He's speaking about this in the context of their obedience. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be. Blameless and innocent. So again, I come back to the point. Are you thinking about yourself based upon your union with Christ, the gift of the Spirit, and God's gracious estimation of who you are according to His loving kindness? Are you thinking of yourself in a biblical way or are you thinking about yourself in a very popular social media way where it's very acceptable to say, oh, I can do nothing for God. I'm just a sinner. Yes, you are a sinner. But that's not all that you are. So, who here is good and righteous and blameless and pure in heart? It is the person who also sits here who is in union with Jesus Christ and has a Father in heaven who is willing to look down upon you and describe you in ways that really do display His grace and kindness towards us, that He would describe us this way. We know how our hearts, it's so hard to obey. We know how we sin. We know so many evil and wicked things about ourselves, how we can even have thoughts erupt like a volcano in our mind, even in prayer where we say, how did this happen? We know this, and yet we should also be aware of how God describes us, notwithstanding those facts. And it's really quite an astounding thing. So what is the pastoral benefit? Uh, I think there are a number of pastoral benefits to this. And you have to accept that if God has said this about us, we need to be careful in describing this to our people in a way that does not lead to a sort of crazy perfectionism where people all of a sudden start thinking they're farther ahead than they really are. But also it doesn't lead to a sort of carnal, well, I'm really nothing and I can do nothing. 
And you, you have to preach about indwelling sin. You have to preach about mortification of the sin that remains in us. But you also have to remind people that they do have the Spirit, that they are good, that they are to be patient, that they are to be kind, that they are to be gentle, and that these things are actually indeed possible. So, one of the pastoral benefits is actually the rewards that God offers to us because of our obedience. Paul's speaking in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8, and he says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, and I don't believe he's just speaking hypothetically, if someone could do good, this is what would happen. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free, whether you are a slave, whether you are free, whether you are rich, whether you are poor, whatever you do that is good, you will receive back from the Lord. Or Paul writes to Timothy, he says, the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's an amazing thing to say to rich people. You could be forgiven for saying, you know, the rich are to do good things because, hey, you've been given so much. Why would you not want to share? And just leave it at that. Isn't that really our attitude? Rich people should share. They've been given a lot by God. And a rich person could hear that from God and say, yes, you're right. I have been given a lot. I should give. And that is true as far as it goes. But Paul isn't content to simply just say, rich people be generous. He actually gives them a motivation for why they should be. And it's not just simply that God has blessed them. It is that they may store up treasure for themselves. That's a motivation for being good. Children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Don't just obey your parents because you ought to obey your parents, and it's a command by God, but that you're going to please God in the obedience that you offer, and God rewards that which is pleasing to Him. It's His very nature to do so. Adam would have been rewarded for his obedience. Christ was rewarded for his obedience. He was given the bride, the church. He was given the promised Holy Spirit. He was given the name above every name. He was given power and glory. It's who God is. There's so many parables from Jesus where this is either explicitly or implicitly hinted at. And as you go through the New Testament especially, you find that the doctrine of rewards and promises from God for obedience are, are all over the place. Whoever receives you receives me. This is Christ speaking in Matthew chapter 10. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. 
The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And you go to Matthew chapter 6 and look at how many times the word reward comes up just in that chapter alone. Or that we believe, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we believe that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Moses was looking to what? The reward. I think some Reformed pastors are actually breaking the Eighth Commandment in their preaching ministry. You know why? They are robbing their congregation because they are not adequately explaining to their congregation that their obedience to Christ will bring reward from their Father in heaven. And because they are robbing their congregations of this teaching, they are robbing their congregations. This may sound a little bit controversial, but I'm going to say it regardless. They may even be worse than those pastors who literally rob their congregations by telling them to put in for this and that and excessively taking from them because they are robbing from their congregations eternal rewards. There's a reason that this comes up so often in the New Testament. It must be a valid, not the only, it must be a valid motivation for obedience that God will reward us. You know, you can say all sorts of things in response. Hey, this can lead to all sorts of problems, you know. Sort of, oh, I'm only doing this because I want to be rewarded. Let me ask you something. Are you as a parent, for example, really going to be concerned when you see your child cleaning up the room and going down with a mop into the kitchen and cleaning the floor and they say, yeah, you know, I really feel I'm going to be rewarded by God for this obedience. Are you going to say, hang on now, I don't like this attitude of yours. Whoever deals with that is a problem. Is it always going to be the case that everything that we do is going to be done with an absolutely pure heart and sinless motives? No, we've already established that. But is it wrong for us to pray to our Father in heaven knowing that He will reward us? I mean, to expect an answer to prayer is to expect a reward, is it not? And it's well nigh impossible to read the New Testament and not come away from the fact that while we are not going to be justified by our works and we're not going to be able to enter into heaven because we've said, oh, I've done this, that, and the other... And that is why we need to be justified by faith alone. Our good works will nevertheless follow us into heaven.